Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Sisters on Air on the Voice of Islam Radio, a women's show where we explore a variety of topics relating to women in religion and society. I'm your host, Khulu Tahir, and in today's episode, we are going to be exploring one of the most fundamental pillars of human civilization and survival, a pursuit that since the history of time, individuals have dedicated their whole lives to, from the cradle to the grave, and one that is said to be the most powerful weapon to change the world. You might have guessed it by now, but yes, we are going to be exploring the topic of acquiring knowledge and education and hearing the perspective of a group of people who are and have been at the forefront of this pursuit. Today, dear listeners, we will be talking to Muslim women who have dedicated their lives to learning and teaching and will be trying to understand why it is that they have done so. In the history of the world, for hundreds and thousands of years before the advent of agriculture, humans lived as hunter-gatherers. Children in hunter-gatherer cultures learned what they needed to know to become effective adults through their own play and exploration. Adults in hunter-gatherer cultures allow children almost unlimited freedom to play and explore on their own, because they recognised that those activities were children's natural ways of learning. With the rise of agriculture and later of industry in the Western world, at the start of what is referred to as the Industrial Revolution, play, exploration and learning for children were suppressed, and they were pushed into the role of forced labourers and expected to work arduously to provide for their families. As industry progressed and became somewhat more automated, the need for child labour declined. The idea began to spread that childhood should be a time for learning and so schools for children were developed. The practice of universal compulsory public education developed gradually in Europe from the early 16th century into the 19th and thus the Western world went through a great expansion in education over the past two centuries. Global literacy rates have been climbing, mainly through increasing rates of enrolment in primary education. Secondary and tertiary education have also seen drastic growth, with global average years of schooling being much higher now than a 100 years ago. Elsewhere in the world, hundreds of centuries prior, these ideas surrounding the importance of learning and acquiring knowledge had already been recognised, established and implemented. For example, since the early stages of the religion of Islam around 610 AD, education has played a central role, owing in part to the centrality of scripture and its study in the Islamic tradition. For the first few centuries after the advent of Islam, education was entirely informal, but beginning in the 11th and 12th centuries, the ruling elites began to establish institutions of higher learning, known as madrasas, which soon multiplied throughout the Islamic world. Between the 8th and 14th centuries was the golden period of Islam, an important period of cultural, economic and scientific flourishing in the history of the world, when many remarkable discoveries and extraordinary findings in the field of science and medicine were made by Muslims, including Muslim women, influenced by Islamic teachings which put emphasis on the importance of acquiring knowledge and seeking education. Today, education is widely recognised around the world to be an essential resource, 
both for individuals and societies. In most countries, basic education is perceived not only as a right, but also as a duty. Governments are typically expected to ensure basic access to education, while citizens are often required by law to attain education up to a certain basic level. Despite all these worldwide improvements, some countries have been lagging behind, where there are still literacy rates below 50% among the youth. Historically, opportunities and access to education for women across the world has been poor compared to men, according to the 2020 report Gender Gaps in Education: The Long View. Data across 50 years and 126 countries was used to see how far the world has come on women's education, and it is reported that on average across the world, women are still less educated than men and women are also more likely to have no schooling compared to men. In recent decades, Muslim women in particular have been subject to much scrutiny in the media and widely shown to be the victims of educational gender inequality, stemming from the many high-profile attacks on girls' education by so-called Islamic extremist groups such as Boko Haram and the Taliban, including the shooting of the then 14-year-old Malala Yousafzai. But what does Islam really say about women and education? Does Islam hamper female educational attainment or is it due to the social, cultural, political and structural constraints Muslim women have to face? Today, let's hear directly from Muslim women, students and teachers of their experiences, motivations and strategies, the role Islam has played in their pursuit of knowledge and the challenges they have faced and overcome as Muslim women in education. I am joined by two guests, Annie Butt, who is a primary school teacher and the Philosophy for Children lead across her school, and Mahida Rahman, who is a PhD student at King's College London, studying the role of transcription factors in stem cell states in silico. Thank you both for joining me for this discussion today. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Um, I'd like to start with you, Annie. Uh, what is your educational background? Why did you go into teaching? And could you tell us about your personal experience as a teacher and your sort of career goals and aspirations? Assalamu alaikum, Khaloud. Um, I grew up in the Netherlands and I moved here at the age of 21. So my primary and secondary and my further education was all completed in the Dutch ed- educational system. Now, I need to point out first that the Dutch educational system is very different from the English one. For example, not all students are required to sit the same secondary school exams as these are dependent on the child's ability. Although I did the higher secondary school exam, I went on to go to pharmacy college where I learned how to become a pharmacy dispenser assistant. Now, after moving to the UK in 2001, I pursued a similar career However, I felt there was a big difference in the ethos and values underpinning this sector, which left me feeling really disheartened as I really enjoyed my profession in the Netherlands, so I decided to take a career break. As I was fluent in both English and Dutch, I worked for an international company for one year, after which I took a four-year break to look after my children. So naturally, when they started attending nursery, I volunteered and I realised that I really enjoyed working with children. I went on to start at a special needs school as a midday supervisor 
and gradually moved from a teaching assistant to a higher level teaching assistant, during which I decided to go into teaching. This meant that I needed a degree, which I did not have. So I took on a foundation degree course with the Institute of Education at UCL and completed a full-time degree while working four days a week. Now, looking back at this time, which was very busy and stressful at times, I know that I would not have been able to do this unless I felt this deeper level of connection with the work that I was doing with the children, but also a passion that was reignited. While I was teaching the children, I realized how much I was learning, and this was one of the main driving factors on days that I felt exhausted and stressed, as I was also going through a quite turbulent time in my personal life. But I really feel that the education that I was pursuing gave me something to strive for, while other things felt out of my control. Not only was I able to get a first-class honours, but I also completed my teacher training successfully. As a mature student, I was able to tackle my initial fears of failure and reach my personal best. And this is exactly what I aim to do for my students. I want them to develop the metacognitive skills to understand their own strengths and areas to develop, so they can reach their personal best. Wow, Annie! By the grace of God, that is so impressive. I think what you said about having education as a constant and something you sort of build upon over the years, independent to all the changes and ups and downs of your personal life, that is something that I can totally relate to and understand. Um, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Mahida, I'd like to pose a similar question to you. What is your educational background and is it safe to assume you've been in formal education your whole life? <laughs> um, yes, um, ever since I can remember actually. Um, I've been a student, I still am a student and thanks to COVID, I will remain a student for a few more months. But to answer your question about my educational background, I'll actually like to start with my parents. So my father, although born here in the UK, went straight into work before starting a higher degree or getting any other form of higher education. And my mother is from Pakistan, but was not able to graduate college. However, they both really wanted their children to pursue further education. And so from a very young age, I was inspired to do well. And this is starting from, you know, my year two and my year six sats. <laughs> And this motivation pushed me into going into a comprehensive girls grammar school. And I also then did my GCSEs very well, alhamdulillah, and ended up doing seven A-levels with subjects that included things like sciences, maths and philosophy and ethics. You did seven A-levels. I literally thought you could only do four at most. And I can't even begin to imagine how full on those two years were for you. Yeah, I would recommend stick to the four or three. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. Um, what did happen, though, when I did my seven is I didn't get the grades that I was expected, um, especially in my A-levels. And so then to get into university, I actually had to go through the clearing process. And here it's actually where I managed to get into the undergraduate master's program. So my first degree is actually something called an MSI, and that's in biomedical sciences from St. George's University. And in that, my research primarily focused on computational techniques, so basically programming, um, which is why I was very privileged, alhamdulillah again, all praise to Allah, to obtain funding for a PhD program at King's College um, in bioinformatics. And this is actually where I first completed another master's in research wow. and this time in translational medicine um, I'd also like to mention um, 
alongside my studies, I have actually done the associateship of King's College London as well. So although my education is primarily very science focused, I have completed a recognised qualification, hopefully inshallah, um, in a more general and more ethics background. Um, and it's just because I felt like I was missing this kind of simulation in my research and I just wanted to learn more. Wow, that is really interesting, Wahida. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I smiled when you said King's College London because I, of course, am also a student there, just going into my fourth year. And in the past, there have been a few occasions we've bumped into each other on campus. (laughs) And it's always such a joy. I honestly love hearing about what you're getting up to in your labs. Um, Mahida, is it just me? I don't know if you can relate, but I've often felt this way during my studies that the more you learn, the more you realise what you do not know. So please tell me, what are your motivations and how do you keep going? So you may have heard of the Socratic paradox, which Plato stated in the simple terms, I know that I know nothing, which is something which I really resonate with 100%. Firstly, because it really highlights the human aspect of humility. And so one can appreciate that the all-knowing, al-alim being, is Allah Almighty alone. But on a more personal level, the more I learn in my research, the more I realize that there is a need to learn more. Mm -hmm. Um, I can really appreciate the gaps, not only in my own knowledge, but also in my field. And then I also begin to question how to address them. And that thrill, the satisfaction of learning, that aha or eureka moment, is in itself a very good motivator. However, I would also like to add, as Ahmadi Muslims, we are very lucky to have a leader, our Imam, to guide and inspire us. I'm of course talking about His Holiness, Mirza Masrur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, our Caliph. To relate a more personal incident, when I was to start my GCSEs, so we're talking about a very little Mahida, maybe in her early teens, <laughs> I asked for prayers from His Holiness, to which he looked at me and he replied, Mahida, you are good at science, you should do medicine. So my goal was once again set for me, and I was inspired that His Holiness had seen something in me to be able to so directly guide me on the best course of action. Bearing in mind, I was only you know, 14 or 15 at the time, and ever since, every success and failure I have, I seek guidance from His Holiness, or as well as His prayers. And His Holiness looks at a person and their circumstances before imparting his wisdom. So come time for choosing to do medicine or pursue research or even a job, I went back to him and I told his holiness how all the options were now open for me. And again, he was the one who encouraged me to pursue a PhD. I actually still have the letter and I have it highlighted. So what I mean to say is my faith is a great motivator to keep me going. And beyond that, I'll also like to mention all of my family, especially my parents, my sibling, my spouse, and even my in-laws. It truly does take a village, but without their constant love and encouragement, I would have probably given up in the moment, you know, in my undergraduate course, a week before my thesis submission deadline, where I had accidentally deleted the most recent 4,000 words that I had written that day. And had my mother not shown tough love, forced me to sit and regurgitate whatever I could remember of those words. And, you know, I had to type until Fajr, which is, you know, the morning Islamic prayer prescribed 
prescribed prayer, I would definitely not be the same person today. Nor can I ever forget how my younger sister would wake me up every hour of the night. Whoa. Literally, it was every hour. She'd be like, Appa, Appa, wake up, wake up. <laughs> Just so that I could finish writing up my PhD proposal and get it submitted on time. Um, in my darkest moments, it is their faces and efforts that I hope not to go to waste. Oh, Mahida, that is such a sweet story. And I'm so glad it all worked out in the end, you know, when you deleted all your words. But as you mentioned now, um, you've got a you've got a couple of months left of your PhD. Yep. Um, so do you have any personal goals in regards to what you want to achieve next in this endless pursuit of knowledge? To be very honest, I would say I don't know. Um, my goal has never really been like really grand or, you know, in in the sense that I think that there's so much out there and I must learn this. So this is exactly what I want to do. What I, I personally want is to educate myself with a rich human experience. And in that pro in that process, I hopefully want to inspire others. And just as I know that I know nothing, I know that I cannot know everything. Mm -hmm. um, however, I want to know the things that will inspire me. And then those are the things that I can learn from. That is such a lovely thought, Maida. Thank you so much for your answer. Um, without a doubt, living in the UK in this day and age, we have been really privileged to have had open access and opportunity to education, free mostly from social, political and structural constraints. Education is rapidly evolving and actually this is something I think about often. You know how our parents loved to remind us when we were younger how they had to walk long distances in harsh weather conditions just to get to their schools? The older I get, the more I realise the truth in their stories and how much easier it really is for us. Even, for example, um, when I'm learning anatomy in med school, I'm able to quickly search up on Google in two seconds, for instance, all the different insertions of a particular muscle. And I can only imagine, before such technology existed, students having to flick through countless anatomy atlases and textbooks. I mean, there are about 600 muscles in the human body. So education has rapidly evolved and today its value and importance in society is widely recognised around the world. Annie, could you tell us in a bit more detail the role of education in society and the sort of benefits of having an educated population? Also, why is it important for women to be educated? And to what extent do women play a role towards the prosperity of a country? Well, Khaloud, you've asked some really big questions there. And I'll try to answer them drawing upon the values underpinning my philosophy for education. Um, I think the first part of your question about education in society is so heavily dependent on the context, as I truly believe that societal and cultural norms and values are formed by the role education plays. So my personal philosophy for education and the role it should play in the teacher's pedagogy is formed by philosophers such as John Dewey, Khalil Gibran and many more who did not agree with the child being this empty vessel that requires to be filled with knowledge. John Dewey was an American philosopher born in 1859 who believed in groups of people coming together to solve issues through a process of discussion, debate and decision making. Dewey believed that education was a crucial ingredient in social and moral development 
but he also believed that education should include learning experiences that are socially engaging and developmentally appropriate for young children. His philosophy of education considered education as a process of living and not this preparation for future living. It is important to be critical in terms of the impact our education is having in long term. I feel strongly about this relentless emphasis on quantifying intelligence in terms of grades. What we are forgetting is that intelligence comes in many forms and Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences highlights these 16 types. So why are we focusing our education so heavily on academic intelligence? To be able to evolve as a society and as individuals within that society, it is so important to be able to adapt to our environment. So although education has moved with times, as you were saying earlier, it had to move drastically recently during national lockdowns caused by COVID-19. Now, if you speak to teachers, they will be able to tell you the long-term impact this has had on children's intelligence beyond academic ability. So, for example, the children's intrapersonal and social skills have not developed as much as they would in a social setting of a school. Yet, we continue with filling the gaps in terms of maths, English and science. Now, this is where my pedagogy or the approach to learning and teaching is underpinned by developing the whole child, which includes creating those opportunities for children to develop the emotional intelligence as this will allow them to become more self-aware individuals. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing those thoughts. Um, Please tell us more, what about the benefits of having an educated population? So, Khaloud, now to get back to the second part of your question, (laughs) which was about the benefits of having an educated population, I kind of wanted to take a different perspective on your question. So at this moment, we have a society that celebrates academic excellence and those who struggle at school are often seen as failures. So when we think about an educated population, it is important to define education. What is it that we are educating? If we teach our students curricular subjects, but we fail to teach them universal values, then do we truly deserve to call ourselves an educated society? Even as we look around in the world, there are so many examples of educated professionals committing atrocities against humanity. And this reminds me of the poem written by Haim Gino back in 1972. And I quote, Dear teacher, I'm a survivor of a concentration camp. My eyes saw no man should witness. Gas chambers built by learned engineers. Children poisoned by educated physicians, infants killed by trained nurses, women and babies shot and burned by high school and college graduates. So I'm suspicious of education. My request is help your students become human. Your efforts must never produce learned monsters, skilled psychopaths, educated Eichmanns. Reading, writing, arithmetic are important only if they serve to make our children more human. End quote. So this poem encapsulates the true meaning of education and academic education alone will not give us this educated population to provide us with a peaceful society. To come to the last part of your question, Khaloud, in terms of the role women play in prosperity of a country, it is important to recognise what prosperity means for us. 
At all times, we need to remember that no academic excellence will create prosperity unless we keep our religious values at the heart of our behaviours and actions. His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, the Caliph or Khalifa of our worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, spoke in Paris on the 8th of October 2019 at the UNESCO special session to discuss harmony through educational excellence. He reiterated the rights of women in Islam and spoke about how the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, instructed his followers to ensure girls were educated and respected. He said that a person who educated and guided the three daughters in the best way would be sure to enter paradise. This is why I always believe that we need to keep our religious values at the heart of our decision-making as cultural and societal expectations often disguise themselves as religious norms. To be able to do this, it's important for women to know the rights Islam has given them. This is why in countries where women are not allowed to know about their rights, they are not taught how to read and write as acquiring this religious knowledge will lead them to a path of enlightenment, the path towards their rights in Islam. Thank you for your answer, Annie, and particularly for sharing that poem. I think those words were so powerful and really illustrated the essence of what it means to be educated, not just in terms of having knowledge and information, but in fact, in terms of the values and ethics you hold as a human. And as you rightly mentioned, religion allows us to do just that. So thank you. Despite there being such a vital role of girls' education in building stable and resilient societies, as you've just explained, Annie, gender disparities in education persist. Around the world, 129 million girls are out of school, including 32 million of primary school age, 30 million of lower secondary school age and 67 million of upper secondary school age. According to UNICEF, in countries affected by conflict, girls are more than twice as likely to be out of school than girls living in non-affected countries. The reasons of this vary depending on country and community. Poverty remains one of the most obstinate barriers around the world, Children living through economic fragility, political instability, conflict or natural disaster are more likely to be cut off from schooling, as are those with disabilities or from ethnic minorities. In some countries, education opportunities for girls remain severely limited due to reasons such as child marriage and gender-based violence, and often poor families favour boys when investing in education. In recent decades, violence and discrimination against girls' education has been used frequently as a tool for violent groups, particularly violent extremists and anti-government militias. Therefore, as history sadly depicts, various means have been used by these groups in an attempt to put a stop to girls obtaining education. Mahida, as a Muslim woman and student yourself, what are your thoughts on the impact of these extremist groups attacking girls' education in the name of the religion that you follow? So, Islam in the mainstream media has had a negative connotation around it for many years now. 
And honestly, as you mentioned, the incident of Manala Yusufzai, which was actually very defining and I think very heavily publicized. But what really gets to me is that the people who cause these dreadful atrocities are not portraying true Islam. In fact, quite the contrary. They have distorted Islam beyond recognition to serve their ulterior motives. And it's the same example with the Taliban. If you look at pictures and images from before the rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan or hear about how women thrived and were happy and compare that to later when the Taliban took over, it is truly haunting. In fact, I think there was a BBC article which showed that as late as 2011, none of the girls in the country attended formal schooling. None. In some ways, as it's been, you know, a year since the Taliban came into power again, we can once again see women are being degraded, ignored and, you know, in a way abused as they are forced into a regressive and harmful regimen under the guise of so-called Islam that the Taliban teach. Unfortunately, this leads to a spiral of decline as women are not educated and hence cannot educate their children either. And societies like these are not only difficult to escape, but they just get worse. And this really frustrates me because, you know, during the golden age of Islam, when the West was still under, you know, undergoing its dark age, even then women were not left behind. They had as deep an impact as men when it came to advancement and education. Now, it's now quite a well-known fact that the world's first university, Al-Qarawin in Morocco, was actually established well over a century before Oxford and was actually founded by a Muslim woman, Fatima al-Fihri. She was educated herself, in fact, so was her sister, and she used the money that she inherited from her father to make a mosque, which later became a learning institute a bit like the history you mentioned before. And this learning institute was actually for the less privileged migrants to learn and get an education. And this is the true Islam, where mankind is benefited. This actually also truly highlights the concept that if you educate a man, you only educate a person. But if you educate a woman, you have educated a whole nation. It's a true example of the high status of women in Islam and how truly inspirational they can be. Now, it's important to note that there are even multiple sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that encourage Muslims, both men and women, to seek an education. In fact, even if you have to go to China, it was with this teaching that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, came and reformed the world. So it's truly heartbreaking for me to see the horrible and misinformed understanding and misrepresentation that I see for Muslim women, in particular in less privileged communities and countries. Thank you for delving into that for us, Maida. I know it's not easy, but as you mentioned, there is little truth, in fact, no truth at all, in the portrayal of the rights of women, especially in terms of education, by these extremist groups, and sadly, as a result, the media. I know you mentioned this a little bit at the end of your answer, but let's have a look into what Islam says about education in a bit more detail. In Islam, Education, particularly the education of women, is given utmost importance. 
every Muslim, regardless of gender, is commanded to read, think, contemplate and pursue knowledge. In fact, even the very first revelation to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, started with the word read and said, Read in the name of thy Lord who created everything. He created man from a clot of blood. Read for thy Lord is most beneficent, who has taught by the pen, taught man that which he knew not. End quote. The Holy Quran, the holy book for Muslims, is an all-encompassing guide which teaches Muslims their purpose and role in life, highlighting rules, legislations, advice, history, examples, and even the system of the universe. The Quran for Muslims is the answer to all the spiritual and material needs of a society and is an exposition and an explanation of all aspects of life for them including acquiring knowledge and seeking an education. Let's take a short break here, and when we return, we will be going into more detail about what the Qur'an says regarding education. You are listening to Sisters on Air on the Voice of Islam radio. Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Musroor Ahmad has said, I have said on many occasions publicly that today's trends are not here to guide religion, Rather, the religion taught by Allah the Almighty is here to guide mankind forever. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back. You are listening to Sisters on Air on the Voice of Islam radio. I'm your host Khulud and I have with me in the studio Annie and Mahida. Before the break, we were talking about the teachings of Islam regarding education and we'll now be delving into how acquiring knowledge is in fact attached to a Muslim's fundamental purpose of existence. According to the Holy Quran, the universe and its parts were not created in vain, and man, the acme of creation, could not be created without a purpose. And the verse, I quote, And I have not created the jinn and the men, but that they may worship me, end quote, explains this and sets out the purpose of the creation of human beings as nothing else but to devote themselves to the worship of Allah. Indeed, the purpose of worshipping God can only be fulfilled when man knows his or her creator and the manifestations of the creator's attributes in the universe something that encourages Muslims to study science and medicine, mathematics, etc., and also has the skill of expression, such as language and speech, for worship and prayer. As stated in the Quranic verse, and I quote, He has created man, he taught him the skill of expression, end quote. Actually, the concept of how humans develop the ability to converse is really interesting. So, popular theories of how language developed are the onomatopoeic and the interjectional theories, based upon the fact that language developed out of the imitation of sounds produced by animate and inanimate objects, such as the falling of water and the blowing of winds. However, studies suggest that these theories are outdated, and one mentions, and I quote, 
the argument that because man can imitate sounds, therefore he must have invented language on the basis of sounds is a mere fallacy. The faculty of speech coexists with the ability to imitate sounds, and one does not exclude the other. In fact, the ability to imitate sounds is only a minor part of the faculty of speech. Words full of wisdom, reason and logic, words describing the whole universe, human nature, its passions and thoughts and all that man lives and works for cannot be reasonably supposed to be the outcome of mere accidental sounds, end quote. And therefore this clearly points towards divine intervention. So going back to what I was talking about before, in Islam, acquiring knowledge is attached to a Muslim's fundamental purpose of existing so that he or she may be able to know God and his manifestations and creations and be able to worship him. And this really is just one of the many instances where Muslims are encouraged to seek knowledge. Countless hadith, that is, the sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, also encourage Muslims to seek knowledge, including one which states that, I quote, a believer never has his fill of knowledge till he ends up in paradise, end quote. Another area the Quran has given guidance on is on what a Muslim should learn which encompasses worldly and religious knowledge side by side. One verse I would like to talk about in particular is, and I quote, and he taught Adam all the names, end quote. The five-volume commentary of the Holy Quran gives a fascinating and in-depth insight into this verse. But for now, I wanted to delve into what we understand from the commentary. That, and that's that the Arabic word for names used in this verse is asma. And this word can actually have the following three meanings. Um, firstly, it can mean God's names or attributes. Secondly, it can mean qualities of different things in nature or the laws of nature. And thirdly, it can mean language. So in short, one simple word, asma, includes almost all branches of education, religion and morality, science and secular learning, and also language. Annie, following on from what I've just been talking about, how does your identity as a Muslim woman play a role in the classroom in terms of how you teach and what you teach? And what has been the impact of being Muslim in your role as a teacher in terms of your interactions with colleagues and the students you teach? Are there any challenges you faced and had to overcome as a Muslim woman? So, Khulud, as a teacher who's visibly Muslim, and by that I mean that I wear a hijab or a scarf, um, I need to understand how this forms an unconscious bias first. So this means that my students, parents, carers, my colleagues, they will hold some preconceived ideas in terms of my beliefs and how these will filter into my behaviours, actions and decision-making. Now, to safeguard all those involved in education, we do have a strict code of conduct which sets out a teacher's duties and responsibilities. And what we teach in the classroom has been set out by the Department for Education. This is why the content of my teaching will not really be guided by my beliefs. At the same time, just like I know that other people's actions and thoughts are underpinned by their values, so are mine. This is why it would be somewhat naive to say that my beliefs do not impact on my teaching, as they definitely have an impact on my pedagogy or the how of teaching. So let me give you an example. 
When I was teaching science and saw that most resources have credited Isaac Newton as the one who discovered gravity, it was my responsibility as an educator to carry out due research to teach the correct historical content. Now, an outsider might think that I made this decision as a Muslim because Isaac Newton drew upon, or some even go as far as to say that he plagiarized, a Muslim scholar's theory for Newton's law of gravity. It's really sad that educators who are critical of educational resources and the curriculum in itself are often seen as troublemakers or rebels. There is a need for critical analysis of our curriculum and how we have been teaching certain aspects of history and whether that's really representative of the events and their impact on all groups of people involved. This has been further heightened by movements such as Black Lives Matters and even now where there is more awareness on the impact colonization has had on the British colonies. Now, so Khalud, to get back to your question, when I'm teaching the one thing that is always at the forefront of my pedagogy is the critical analysis of the knowledge that I'm communicating to my students. This means that I go beyond the resource and I look at other sources of information, looking at the same events from a range of perspectives. Now, although this may be seen as a dislike for the curriculum, I truly believe that knowledge is power and critical analysis of that knowledge is important to recognize how this knowledge is shaping people's perspectives on historical events and their thoughts towards a group of people. Now, in terms of the challenges that I faced as a Muslim teacher, I can honestly say that there have been situations where I haven't agreed with what I've been told to teach. However, as a teacher, I always remember Socrates' words, which I mentioned earlier as well. He said, and I quote, I cannot teach you anything. I can only make you think, end quote. This is why it is always my aim to open my mind to a range of opinions and views. And of course, some of those views will be different from mine. And this is where you will have to show acceptance and just agree to disagree. Now, that in itself is one of the most important skills that you can learn and then teach your students in order to build a peaceful society. And I also keep our Ahmadiyya Muslim community's motto, love for all, hatred for none, in mind when I'm teaching things that are not aligned with my religious values, as love will allow me to accept those differences. Now, I've often spoken to parents, for example, who did not want to give their permission for their child to go on an educational visit to a place of worship. During these conversations, I've explained to parents that this would be one of the very few opportunities their child will have to understand other people's perspectives in society, and going to a place of worship will not change your beliefs about your own religion. And while doing this, I often share my own experiences as a Muslim teacher who had never gone into a Gurdwara until I went on an educational visit, which I was really excited about because I knew that this was one of the very few opportunities I would have to see a Sikh place of worship. Whenever I share this with my class, I can just see the surprise on the faces of those children who are Muslims. But I can also see how happy those children are who visit the same Gurdwara. 
And it really shows how my role as a teacher goes beyond imparting knowledge. It includes modeling the behaviors that we need to create harmony within our community, which is our classroom for now, so that children learn acceptance of other people's faiths. As Aristotle wrote, and I quote, it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it, end quote. This is why I really don't think that a disagreement in beliefs or opinions should lead to a challenge that we cannot overcome, as long as we have an open mind and education at the heart of all our conversations. Wow, Ani, that is truly inspiring. I love that you're teaching your students to not just believe what they're told, but to think for themselves and make their own informed decisions. And I'm sure Mahida would agree too, critical analysis of sources is a lifelong skill and essential mm. in all spheres of life, especially medical research. This is something I've encountered increasingly, actually, since beginning med school, that, for example, for a certain physiological process in the human body, there can be many different theories proposed by different researchers for the mechanism behind it. And in fact, every day we have hardworking researchers like Mahida discovering new concepts and ideas. So it's really important to keep an open mind and to understand that, for example, an explanation in one textbook or one lecture is not the definitive explanation. There can be many theories and explanations for the same thing. And Annie, it is so nice to hear that you're teaching this skill to your students from such an early age. Um, now I want to move on to a slightly different topic regarding the representation of Muslim women in academia. So from my personal experience when I was in school, there weren't that many Muslim women in leadership roles within my school. And I'm just thinking about it now. I feel like there was just one dinner lady who was Muslim and no other teachers or any staff members were Muslim. And I feel like even subconsciously, this really affects you as a Muslim girl. Um, for example, during my medical school interviews, when I was the only Muslim girl in my circuit, I, I remember looking around and thinking, do I even belong here? And feel a sort of imposter syndrome. Um, Maida, is this something that you can relate to? Um, so in some ways, I suppose so, yes. Um, I definitely don't remember many Muslim women in such roles growing up. But now I think the narrative has changed a little. And I think back to leadership roles, and I don't think that there were many women in such roles mm -hmm. anyways. True. And then so then within this minority of women, there's an even fewer, you know, smaller minority of Muslims. Um, and I remember I was actually the only Muslim in my primary school for a very long time as well. Okay. And, you know... Um, as a child, I knew I was a Muslim. So my mother had a big hand in making me believe that this difference was actually, um, you know, it was a superpower and it was something that I should take pride in. And so I grew up with this conviction that, you know, being a Muslim woman was my superpower and um, something that I should really own. So I had plenty of women role models to look up to within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. So my mother, my grandmother, and, you know, Muslim women around me, especially in the community, were confident in their faith, their attire, 
and their roles in society. So in a way, what I'm trying to say is that the Muslim women were stronger um, in front of me than women in general. And this is something that they really instilled in me from a very young age. Hence, I had the community and the mosque where I belonged to and belonged in. And even though I was a minority, I was truly embraced for my uniqueness and the identity I had. Mm-hmm. And then as a Ahmadi Muslim woman, I saw that we had our own ladies organization, you know, which wasn't very new. It had been going on for such a long time. Lejna um, Imaila which was solely run by women, for women. So the leadership roles I saw on a regular basis were, in fact, women. There were no men involved. Um, we, you know, we have the local presidents, we have the regional presidents, and then we also had a national president. And then I do appreciate, granted, this was not in a regular setting. And now I think about some of the women I know, and they have amazing careers. So, you know, teachers such as any, um, heads of departments in schools, and even in the NHS. In fact, my own little sister, mashallah, um, <laughs> works and is thriving in a very typically male-dominant field of computer science and technology. And to be honest, she's not alone much anymore. Many of my friends now work for these multinational corporations. You know, they work for the government, and some of them even have their own businesses. Now, all such examples are hallmarks of leadership and most people would consider these as successful women. In fact, even in mainstream media, we have examples of Muslim representation for females in lead roles. So the most recent one I'm thinking of is Miss Marvel. So I would say that there is actually not maybe so much point dwelling on the past um, because as we can see the present is shaping to be a much better future and I'm just going to come back to the imposter syndrome um, just because this is something that I genuinely believe I am facing day in day out because it's more prevalent in women anyways and so this is something that you know as I'm saying I struggle with it too Um, but here too I believe that it's better to build on it with a growth mindset and actually think about it more positively so when I feel out of my depth it's not because I'm a Muslim but it's just because it's something that overwhelms me and I consider you know how can I beat this fear and learn to grow and you know inevitably just be better I love that Mahida thank you um what has been the impact of being a Muslim woman in your role as a student and sort of the interactions that you have with teaching faculty and fellow students? Um, So as I mentioned, my faith earlier, I would say that it's been a real driving factor for me in my studies. In fact, my faith um, also cultivated this interest of morality and it inspired me to study philosophy and ethics, you know, throughout my formal education, be it for my A-levels or the AKC, as I mentioned before. Um, So for my studies, I don't think it hindered me at all. Listening to Annie speak, I do think there was a bit of an unconscious bias like the teachers would have about me. Um, But, you know, not really. Perhaps if I really want to be critical, I would say that I may have missed out on some of the typical student life ongoings that go on. So, for example, I actually opted not to go to my high school prom or my A-level prom, whenever that happened, um, because it was a mixed social event. And, you know, there would be dancing and there'd be music. And I was really, like, aware that this is not where my faith aligns. And instead, around the same time, this wasn't planned, but it did happen, I actually ended up going to Umrah, um, which is the Islamic pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, You know, it can be taken any time of the year, and I just 
happened to go around the same time. <laughs> um, but even that, I was just think that just really empowered me. I was, you know, amongst the Muslim students at, at my high school um, who actively wore a headscarf. And, you know, this was an all-girls school. And so oftentimes, you know, for questions related to Islam, I became like the unofficial Muslim consultant, <laughs> not just for my class fellows or friends, but also for my teachers. So many times in this way, I felt that the teaching staff and faculty really appreciated my input. And, you know, they took it on board, um, which just really just helped me grow in my confidence. And by the time, you know, I was at university, I got elected as the Ahmadiyya Muslim Women Student Association's president. Um, and this, again, although it was, a, you know, it was quite a lot of commitment, it meant more time away from, you know, my desk or trying to study. Um, but at the same, and, you know, so time consuming. But it, it, again, it enabled me so much to grow more in my confidence. And just being a representative of all of these female students, um, especially because they were all Muslims as well, they were Muslim female students. Um, so, yeah, it also really just, you know, put blessings in my work. And it just opened so many further avenues for me for my education because being the president, is it sounds like this amazing extracurricular and it really stood out in my personal statements for, you know, when I applied for my PhD, which I also got help with from the Ahmadiyya Muslim Research Association. So, you know, a lot of help along the way with my mm-hmm. faith. <laughs> I'm still laughing at Muslim consultant. This <laughs> is just so funny. But also so cool that your faith in being a Muslim woman has been a source of empowerment and growth for you throughout your life and has had such a positive impact on you in so many ways. Um, have there been any challenges you've had to face and overcome as a Muslim woman? I get asked this question quite often. And I think my personality is such that I don't feel the challenges as a negative <laughs> thing or something that I have to overcome, to be honest. However, a little beyond the scope of my education comes the role as a wife. And I mention this because Islam does teach that men and women do have separate responsibilities. And so when I got married, I realized that I was indeed different. I wasn't like the other girls, mostly because no one was married at my age. So it was like, oh my goodness, you're so young. Um, And I had a home of my own now, and I also had a husband. However, I was still studying, and it was only with my family's agreement that I decided to commute to a different city almost every week. And this is a challenge that I still face. So, you know, between home versus studies, I suppose I'm lucky that I have not had to face the issues and dilemmas such as, you know, problems like wearing the hijab or not finding places to pray or learning subjects that contradict my faith. Um, This is something a little more personal um, and just how my circumstances turned out and came around. But I do know that there are girls who face these issues and, you know, places where girls, you know, have to question their faith or they need to choose between their faith and their studies or whatever opportunities given their way. But I think, again, here actually lies an opportunity for them to learn about their faith and understand what the actual religion teaches. So if there is a problem, is it actually your culture or is it a problem with faith? And then truly question the question, but then also answer it for themselves. So these challenges, in a way, are also then disguised as a blessing. Mm -hmm. Yes, precisely. And I believe every person faces their own sort of personal challenges reflective of their personal circumstances. 
And it's going through these challenges and facing them. You learn about yourself and what truly matters and you come out stronger because of it. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Maida, and ending our discussion today with such thought-provoking ideas. Um, thank you to you both, actually, for sharing your insights on what it's currently like to be Muslim women in education. Throughout Muslim history, there have been many notable Muslim women who have excelled in their fields of knowledge and made a remarkable impact on the world, such as the wife of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, Aisha bint Abi Bakr, may Allah be pleased with her, who narrated over 2,000 hadith and was a leading scholar of her time. And women such as Rabia bint Muawad, a great scholar of law in Medina, Umi Atiyah, who taught Islamic law, Aisha bint Saad ibn Abi Waqas, who had many famous scholars as her pupils, and Fatima al-Fihri, the founder of the school that the Guinness Book of World Records calls the oldest continuously operating institution of higher education in the world. And since then, countless Muslim women have joined this list of prominent scholars of the world. Today, AMSA, the Ahmadiyya Muslim Women's Students Association, a large growing network of Muslim girls studying in a variety of courses at educational institutes across the world, are at the forefront of seeking education, united and guided by the worldwide head of the community, His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper. Set up with the mission to be a source of spiritual support and sisterhood for Ahmadi Muslim women studying at schools and colleges and universities around the world, AMSA allows a platform for Muslim girls to share their knowledge and first-hand experience on all student-related matters. Since the beginning of time, education has played a vital role in building societies and civilizations shaping individuals and enhancing their perspectives. And today, through seeking knowledge and gaining education, Ahmadi Muslim girls under the guidance of His Holiness are at the forefront of fulfilling their rights to their Creator and of His creations by striving to excel in their studies and using their knowledge and skills for the betterment of society. This brings us to the end of today's episode. We've had a really interesting discussion. I've been your host, Khulu Tahir. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Sisters on Air on the Voice of Islam Radio. Thank you once again to our guests, Ani and Mahida, and our listeners. This programme was produced by Shermeen Butt. Please join us again next time for more discussion on matters relating to women and religion and society. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you.